A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point this week would be through chapter 23 of The Well of Ascension, the second book in the Mistborn trilogy by Brandon Sanderson. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. I've really been enjoying, Crossland, these like morning slash early afternoon episodes we've been doing because I am in such strange energies throughout the day. It's a ton of fun. Yeah, you're just doing a whole dance number for there for everyone who can't um, see this, which is everyone. So no one can see this except for me. But PJ was doing a little dance number and uh, it was very good. I'm if anybody knows anything about me, I'm very good and very coordinated when it comes to dancing super great at dancing we're all we're all very impressed with uh, with your with your dance moves. I, I very much so look like the wacky inflatable arm mans i'd like it's true use car dealerships my dance style is that guy imitating a dude with an air blower shoved up his ass and forced to wave around in the air hey you know don't judge me man we're starting strong again all right today it's our fourth episode discussing the well of ascension by brandon sanderson and we are going to chat about chapters 19 through 23 but before we do that pj what are you drinking today i see this name and i do not know what it is so i have been making a lot of cocktails lately i've been on a tiki kick Kaylin and I have been making a lot of tiki cocktails in the evenings after work and stuff so i've been making a lot of cocktails out of smuggler's cove by Martin Kate. And Smuggler's Cove is a tiki bar in LA, I believe. And I was yep. looking for a cocktail to make with this tequila that Sharkbait, one of our patrons, got for me. So I found a, t- a tiki tequila cocktail. Also from the Smuggler's Cove, I think that's their current menu. It's not in this book, but it's on their current menu at the bar. So it is a Pinky Gonzalez. It is, they call for an ounce of Reposado, an ounce of Blanco tequila. I just did two ounces of this Aha uh, Aha Toro Reposado tequila, which is delicious. I've It's really good. I'm really happy with it. But so two ounces of that, three quarters of an ounce of lime juice, half an ounce of Cointreau, half an ounce of Orgeau, all of that shaken, served over crushed ice. And then garnished with a spent lime half, the spent lime half from the from the lime juice, and a mint sprig. And it is just refreshing. It's light. It's very, I mean, it, it's basically a margarita with orgeau, more or less. And I, I don't know. It's delicious. So. It I'm sounds delicious. It. Yep. Like, it sounds ridiculously tasty. <laughs> and I was... Um, similarly thinking about doing something with tequila, but I settled against it because I forgot that liquor stores aren't open on Sunday here. ABC oh, they're stores. not open at all? Rather. Nope. Interesting. But well, just ABC, like you can sell, you can still sell on Sunday. So like you can buy beer and stuff like that, just not liquor. So it's gotcha. just the state run business is closed on Sunday. I guess that makes sense then. Yeah. What are you following that up with? Following that up, I've got Very Varied, which is a double IPA from Bearded Iris. Out of Nashville. Hmm. 
So cashmere hops, cashmere and Nelson hops, and then it just says unique yeast. So it's a it's some house IPA yeast that they use, but it's a double IPA. I think it clocks in right around eight percent. Yeah, eight point oh. Really, I mean, pretty standard, but very very clean. Well done, New England. So I am having kind of a classic cocktail. Uh, I, I spun it a little bit on on my own and changed it up just a smidge. Uh, Mathar previously had this on our show. They they I think called it like a they I forget what they called it like a Cuban El Cuban Presidente or El Cub, uh, something like that. We have anyway. It on our they use a Puerto Rican rum. It is definitely on our website. They use a Puerto Rican rum as opposed to what I did, but. What I've got here in this El Presidente is 1.5 ounces of golden aged barrel-aged rum. The end of days specifically, that barrel-aged rum, so good. Three-quarter ounce vermouth blanc, sweet, important there, of course, don't get it dry. So as opposed to the normal recipe calls for one half ounce triple sec, I use three quarters because the dry curacao goes, is a little bit more subtle, I think, than some of the other ones. So I added a little bit more just to compensate there. Generally speaking, you're supposed to do one bar spoon of grenadine, which I would recommend. I did two because I forgot the recipe. (laughs) I thought it called for two and an orange twist. So very good. I mean, it's a classic cocktail for the most part. Small spins on it, but nothing insane. So Mathar called it the big prez. The big prez. So that was one and a half ounces of Puerto Rican rum, triple sec, dry, dry vermouth, orange bitters, and orange peel to garnish. So omitted the grenadine in that one. Yeah, and used orange bitters instead, which gotcha for sure works. Yeah, this is this is really good. I I think that, like I said, I made a small mistake with the grenadine. I think that I'd be getting a lot more of the herbaceous notes through and a little bit more of the rum. With the two grenadine, it feels a little bit, it's not that it's too sweet, it's just that there is a decent, like you'd typically anticipate, there's just a decent amount of pomegranate actually in the in the bill, which I think it's supposed to be more subtle as opposed to being kind of that the end of the evolution as it is in your mouth when you're drinking it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I like it, but I would modify and go to one bar spoon. That's fair. Yeah. I am following that up with a new beer from a previous company that I've talked about before. So this is from Sycamore, and they just released this new beer called Super Lemon Haze. It's a double IPA with lemon. So I am pretty interested in what this is going to end up tasting like. But they they generally put, like, little explainers on the edge, and as opposed to putting an explainer, they put a wrap on the edge. Oh, God. Which is another I'm not gonna wrap it. I'm just I'm just gonna read it. Uh, lemons on the chain with the V cuts. Lemon haze in the shade with my feet up. Lemon pepper wings and a freeze cup. Lemons in their face. Watch them freeze up. <laughs> it's it's a fun time. So mm. haven't tried it yet, but intrigued. We'll give it a go. But I, I just saw the label and I was like, this seems interesting, and I like sycamore, so I'll give it a go. Perfect. Ooh, that's really good. So I'm guessing lemon drop hops. It says with lemon. Oh, straight up like, with lemon. So I think they actually brewed okay. lemon. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 not like a sour, but it's a, a lot of what I like in a sour profile, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. As opposed to generally an IPA having like an orangey, tangerine you know, note that might be in the same hazy profile. This is instead lemony. And it's an 8.8 percenter, too. So as opposed to like a lining kugels, which would be like very lemony, this is like a a thicker bill. So... That sounds really good. It's really good. This is like, I, I use the Liney Kugels comparison. This is like an IPA Liney, if that makes sense. IPA, summer Much shandy. more subtle on the lemon, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, that sounds good. It's tasty. All right. Let's get into our chapters, talking about chapter 19 through 23. So to start it off here, we open up this week with Sazed having exhausted his steel mines that took up months to build to make his way to Luthadel, but he's ran into something along the way as he takes off this last one here. Not necessarily the end of his reserves, I think, but it's the end of this reserve, just to clarify. But before we get to what he ran into, I want to say that I think it's a really clever choice here for Sazed to be effectively internally monologuing his description of the landscape and let Sanderson flex some descriptive information for once inside of his perspective. I love the description, the depiction of like Aspens as these like bony fingers reaching up from the ground with their white bark and sort of the ash falling and staining it. And it to I I just love I love that imagery. What would you think of, you know, the imagery that we get from Sazed's perspective? I hadn't really put a finger on sort of the reasoning why, but I think this sort of this set of description made me realize why I like Sazed's perspective so much. It's this simultaneously concise and very descriptive way of writing and speaking that Branderson just really, really does super well because it's not super flowery, but it's not cold either. It's, it's like a perfect blend of the two. It's a perfect middle ground. I don't know. I just like it and I couldn't figure out why until you sort of put it into the into focus and made me think about it more yeah i get that but i mean and i think that that also makes sense that's part of the reason that i i like even just the writing in this book is is strictly an improvement in in sort of the style ways that i like um and appreciate and it is some of that is his concise nature in these descriptions some of it's like vin a little bit later repetition it feels like brandon's had the tool belt i think he had the tool belt but he wasn't really using it all in that first book so much and now you know, I think maybe in part because of the content that he's covering here, being that it's like political and it's not directly action all the time. And there's a lot of, you know, moving chess pieces and conversation as opposed to cool, shooty, fighty coin fights. He he has to use more tools and he has to use different tools. And I think that he is now using those adequately. Yeah. Like even, the, you know, as as we think about it, the, the army that we're about to talk about, right, there's this army that's preparing to march on Luthadel, and we, we see these depiction of the Coloss, and we'll definitely get into kind of the description of the Coloss, but that is, it's almost a page to describe this creature and how they work and function and how they look, and, you know, it feels like, again, he's using different tools. Yeah. I never had a, any qualms with the way that he wrote throughout Mistborn throughout the final no, empire right but this just seems so so much tighter i didn't have the way of articulating why it just seemed better and you know i'm glad you do <laughs> pj say it good it good. i like good it, it good. good i like good okay so says it sees this other army preparing to march on luthadel but this one is very different than the two that we've seen previously a wave of blue as we meet kind of the the coloss these blue men their skin stretching on under their ever-growing size to the point of ripping anywhere from 5 to 12 feet in height and just extremely violent and brutish population they are a horrifying sight to behold what's your first impression of the coloss so I think first I want to talk about Sazed while he's coming to this realization of what he's looking at while up in the tree. And 
I think this scene is really illuminating for both his personality and Farrakhami in general to see sort of his excitement as he pours through his copper mind and we get simultaneously some understanding of how he pours through a copper mind. It's like he's going through this internal Rolodex of information and he's physically searching for it on, on this bracer of his. It's not just that he has the information innately within him. He is physically searching on the copper mind itself, trying to find like parsing through all of the information and finding the bits on the coloss that he knows is there. But he's he's excited by new things and by curiosity. And even in the face of something truly terrifying, as he describes it, and and just intimidating, he is excited to to search through this and find the information and really try to parse out new details and old details and like does this match what we know about them? That said the Coloss seem to kind of live in the same space for this story as the orcs do in other fantasy stories and specifically like within the Lord of the Rings and within like D&D lore of these intelligent but brutish races. And knowing that they're intelligent, all that I'm thinking about is like, is it possible for them to live inside uh, and integrated into society as opposed to their own segregated society? Are they up to the level of intelligence to be able to communicate effectively and live effectively? Commerce, is that possible with them? Like, How deeply rooted is this way of life to their core being? Like, Is it possible to break from that? Stuff like that. I'm thinking about that, but I'm also thinking about the fact that this is the second now non-human intelligent race that we've come across, being the Coloss now and the Chondra. Because the Terrace people are human, correct? They're just yes, very, very tall, taller mm-hmm. than normal, but they're they're still technically human. So this is this is the first group of intelligent people we've seen. The Chandra, we've seen individuals and they've talked about their community, but like, I don't know. Are there more? What else is there? How big is this world in that the, it's mentioned that the Coloss were used by the Lord Ruler anytime they discovered new people on the internal islands, I think it was called. So how big is this world? How far stretching is it? And how many places are currently unknown to the populace that we've been exposed to so far. That is a great... (laughs) That's a lot to take in, I know. Yeah. I want to talk about your points, actually, Uh, variously. Like, I want to to talk to your points. So, kind of going through them line by line, as I recall them, Coloss seem seem in the same place as orcs in other fantasy stories. Specifically, I would say, like, Urukai to some degree in Lord of the Rings. Like, they they kind of have that pretense about them. Less, Less, like orcs naturally occurring i think if that mm-hmm. makes sense because the naturally yeah. occurring orcs are a little bit they're closer to goblins to be honest in in my impression most of the time but the uruks in particular seem very similar kind of the there's no charisma to them but there is sort of a fierce quality in which ferocity and aggression are valued traits in in society and those are the people that survive splitting into the aggression the larger you are the more power you seem to command right like the the more physically imposing the the 
I'm not saying that those people are leaders, but they're less likely to be fucked with <laughs> versus the tiny guy who's annoying who gets the shit beaten out of him until he dies, right? Like that's you were you were talking a little bit about that and how they sort of impose themselves on on others in that way, and mm-hmm. uh, the fact that they they seem to be intelligent but not fully human from our perspective right now in what in terms of what we have, right? Like you said, they're they're they feel like an other race like Chandra. Yeah, and I'd be I don't know. Do you think? I'm not going to ask you because you can't fucking answer because I have to read and find out. But I'm I'm really interested to see if we can find an example of an individual coloss that could integrate into human society. I feel like the natural progression is to be exposed to an individual that subverts that expectation and can be reasoned with and integrate well into society as we know it and as we understand it within Luthadel, for example. So you're looking to see that level of integration, to see that kind of double back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that makes sense to me, and I definitely get it. We we get some other like elements of of intrigue. Oh, I also wanted to say, check the Discord I posted a photo. Yes, you did. I wanna I wanna real quickly at the very least describe real quick what what we're looking at so if you are a fan of the series and have read far enough um past the hero of ages you can go check this out for sure if you look up Colossus and copper minded scion gorillas i think it's Scion gorilla scion gorillas a depiction of Colossus, and it's this blue skinned giant with like the the sort of fleshy the flesh peeling away even from the lips and the nose missing almost entirely and you know devoid of cartilage and ears and yeah anyway it's it's a great depiction yeah, I imagined it a little bit more human and less like less pigmenty blue and more like just fucking bruised, if that makes sense. So more more spots of like black and some yellow and like primarily like if you get a really, really bad bruise that turns blue, mm-hmm. that's the sort of pigment that I was imagining across their entire body. Because they're like growing out of their skin and my my assumption was like bruising their own skin. Yeah, that's the way I sort of rationalized the coloration of them. Well, and and you're welcome to believe what you like. Theater of the mind, right? This is just a depiction. I just like in particular, especially the shaving down of features that Brandon gets so specific into. And this is something that I wanted to talk. We were talking about the tool belt earlier, right? Descriptions here like. The idea that he's describing these people without their ears and like the cartilage missing and the flat nose and the stretching sinew of skin with muscles showing and the red eyes and all of these different things is horrific in its own right. Like these are terrifying creatures. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of how like if you imagine the like teal pigmentation of skin or like the bruised yellow, like either way, it's either way bruised yellow black is more gross <laughs> you know <laughs> the stretching yeah, yeah i i can i can understand that depiction for sure or that either way first of all that that depiction and that like drawing fucking awesome mm-hmm. but the coolest thing to me for the description was how widespread their like height could be and their size could be it's not just that they're continuing to grow as they get older between five and 12 feet for fighting age mm-hmm. is fucking ridiculous. That's such yeah. a big spread. That is a massive spread in terms of just size. Like it is a, it is a absolutely 
12 feet disparate size 12 feet tall is fucking crazy yeah because i'm assuming yeah and five feet (laughs) is a pretty small person a really small person for an adult it's under average yeah under average adult and probably still formidable and growing two and a half times that height i'd assume probably pretty proportionately it's just it's a wild thing to consider when looking at an army 12 is even treated as the outlier for the record it's five to ten is the average ancient coloss grow up to 12 feet and beyond um, is the specification inside of the book itself but okay that that is from because the 12 foot and above thing is from the copper mind oh it's from the copper he recites mind. and he okay. sees fighting ages that five to ten like we've been talking about but 12 you know they can get up that big they can get bigger so there's this question of like why <laughs> why does that work mm. how does that work why do they grow until they die and their hearts fail or like why what what <laughs> how does all of this work so that was mm-hmm. a lot on Colossus, but i i think that they're so cool and it's something that was talked about in the first book and now we have re- we've kind of yeah. shown to us and clearly they're going to be critical in some facet what did they say about it in the first book just that it was an it intimidating was army yeah like i i recognize the term but mm-hmm. man <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was just mentioned that the Coloss would, like, need to march on the city and that it would take a long time for them to get there in the first place. So that was a part of the consideration of the rebellion. I don't think it even considered or even mentioned that it was a different race, like a different species. No, it just said the Coloss. It was capital. So so it wasn't strictly made. I assumed it was a nation. Sure. Like the Americans. The Americans. The Swedes. The Swedes. (laughs) (laughs) That was French. I don't know why I did that. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> so, lowering himself down from the tree, there's a lot of questions of exactly what these men are going to do to him, and they seem to have decent intentions. Um, they walk into the camp, but as they do, Sazed sees two different things. One, a coloss killing another coloss for seemingly no reason, and two, a small pouch on their backs. What do you think about the society that's existing here or blooming here? Because, it, I mean, this appears to be different than Sazed's understanding from his copper mines. I don't, I don't know. It seems like it's a a deviation from their norm or from what Sazed knows about it as a means of, I assume, assimilating into this army led by Josties. Like, my guess is that there's sort of a, a bribe and a promise by King Josties for the Coloss to become integrated into society somehow. And part of that is introducing them to uh, sort of an economy, a coin-based economy. And for that reason, they've all been given this stipend of seed money, and they've become understanding of the advantages it has to have more than others. So they are naturally taking what they can from others when they fall. So I don't know. That's so my, you're taking it thought. almost as like a they've been pushed into capitalism and when they kill someone else they get their money they inherit their bank account basically and yeah. that they've been kind of hmm yeah maybe not maybe not into capitalism yet but they've become understanding of coin equals value and value means more security sure yeah and it's maybe not tangible yet but they have the understanding that it will be later. 
in whatever society. Well, it feels society. like their impression of a system. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It feels like it feels like this impression of like what society will be, and so they're being like pushed into that sort of ideology to some degree. Like they're, you know, not used to this. Right. So, or they have an impression of what it should be, and so they're trying to push it that direction. You know, trying to become human in your own right, as you're as you're kind of like pointing out, or more human like. Yeah. Yeah, or, I mean, more Luthadelian. Sure. Specifically. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So, we then, of course, are led by a pair of, by the Kotlos to a pair of guards that bring us to our dear Jasties, our friend from the first book, one of Ellen's mm-hmm. friends, Ellen's philosophy club mate, leading these Kotlos to Luthadel, hoping to form an alliance with his old drinking buddy so that they can kind of rule in co-peace between the two of them what do you make of Josties and his upcoming role in all of this we've got two old dudes and a young dude and two young dudes leading armies <laughs> yeah i wish i had gone back and like reread the sections with Josties because i remember he i remember we had conversations about him specifically because mm-hmm. was he like malaligned because i knew he was going to be important i'm just kidding no yeah <laughs> That could be cynically. Yes. I'm just giving Um, shit, but I feel like he wasn't necessarily perfectly aligned with Ellen, but he wasn't like malaligned with him either. It just, he, he seemed less enthusiastic about all of the changes that Ellen was pushing for or hypothesizing. That said, I, I, I still feel like he's trying to be what the philosophy club was sort of talking about. Maybe he hasn't grasped everything about the sort of social change that they were working towards, but he doesn't have a council to to steer him or check him for his decision-making process. So what I got out of Josties in this section was that he seemed like a kid, more or less, trying to be better than the ruling class before him, but really only knows their ways. So he doesn't know what it means to be better. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I totally, I definitely agree with you. I think to give you some context on Jossies as we know him or as we understood, he was the one who turned in or who didn't really turn in, but commented on Vin kind of disappearing and coming back. He wasn't so he wasn't the um, one who was skeptical of Ellen or like his decisions, but he did push him on some things. Uh, particularly like ska intelligence was one of the things that he definitely like questioned okay. and kind of pushed back on. And there were, there were a couple of other things, but he was one of those that was more philosophically minded for the, the free experiments, not necessarily that he, you know, was going to go as far as Ellen would when forced to, but I think it's another parallel between the, the characters, because we can see that in, in concept or conceit at the very least, we can see that, Ellen is trying to execute his philosophy and is trying to put it into action. Meanwhile, we don't really have a full picture on uh, King Lacal here, King Jostie's Lacal, but we do have a sort of vague idea that maybe he isn't following the ideology as strictly as, you know, we yeah. don't really know. We don't really have a picture of his intentions yet, actually. Yeah. My, I would say my sort of read on him is entirely speculative. Yeah, and right. it's really sort of grasping at straws as far as context for trying to give reason for what he's doing 
and the way he's acting, like reading it at face value entirely, mm-hmm. he's kind of a dick. Yeah. But I can't glean much more off of it than that. But knowing his background and knowing that he was part of this philosophy club, I'm extrapolating a lot and trying to like justify any sort of decision that he's making. And who knows if that's correct mm-hmm. at this point. Well, right, right. And this is just this is us trying to pull those pieces from what we had before, put them in with what we understand and where we think he aligns. And it feels like he doesn't have malintent towards Ellen. He, I think he truly does maybe naively believe that he can control the Coloss fully, as Sazed kind of points out. He doesn't believe it. Um, and especially later, Sazed continues to question this directly to Ellen. But I think that he does genuinely like think that a partnership with Ellen is good. He's not playing the Straffer set deception angle, you know? Yeah, but he also definitely wants to be the one in control and to have Ellen working underneath him. I don't think that was strictly true. I think he wanted the money so that he could affirm his role. Yeah, if he's not the one, like, if if he's the one with the money, he's taking it from Ellen and Ellen is working underneath him. That was the implication that I got there. Like, hmm. you don't make an alliance with somebody and then take all of their money. And say that you're still just a strict alliance. Yeah, that's fair. And he said, let him have Luthadel or something like that. Like, yeah, that's totally right. Yeah, he's he's planning on becoming the main leader with mm-hmm. Ellen being the sub leader of Luthadel. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I don't know. No, you're right. I'm just trying to not trying to do anything i'm i'm just piecing it out in my head i think that there's a lot left for us to discover and talk about with Jasties. <laughs> that's probably is. the best way to put it is that if clearly you, this is setting that up but if you are a patron of ours and you listen to the devil's cut of this episode we talked about an argument that crossan and i had and kind of broke that down a little bit about apostrophe s's yeah after an s on a name and what's correct and what's not. So if you're interested in our takes on that, that's in the devil's cut of this episode, which you can only access if you're a patron at patreon.com slash words and whiskey. For what it's worth as well, it was Jastis's name that made us have yeah. this discussion yeah, <laughs> to begin exactly. with. Because PJ is one way and I am the other. So cool, cool, cool. Go listen to that <laughs> so you can hear our opinions there. All right. And so I I just I think there's one other comment that I want to make before we move into the next chapter into chapter 20. I think Sazed makes some excellent comments here within kind of the conversation with Jastis. And I want to just bring them up. Things like kind of civilization is no great achievement (laughs) as he's commenting on how he's civilized um, them. It's it's more about survival. Like you can create civilization and have it not be this sort of grand thing. As well as his personal statement about his own freedom and how he takes himself so seriously and like he will never be enslaved again. And that sort of mentality of like, I'm sorry, sir, and like still uses all the formal titles that he's, you know, been trained to use. But at the same time, he's like, that's not me. That's not my people anymore. And I won't be doing that. I That's so enabling. Like, that's such a good drawing that boundary. And, and so cleanly, it. too, in in a in a way that's not. He wasn't it's disparaging. Not it's not argumentative. Yeah. It's just, hey, I think you forgot, like, we're a free people now. So I can't be. <laughs> he even apologizes. He yeah. even apologizes that, like, he won't he he won't be a servant anymore. Fucking says it like such a good person, such a good character. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad that we get so much more of Sazed here. I, I think do you, that... Do you hear what this... Do you hear this? Do you hear this trust of a character that's exuding from me? Yeah, it's, it is. <laughs> I mean, we've seen a lot of Sazed at this point, so one would hope that you finally realize that he's kind of a protagonist. Yeah, I, I think that that flow of trust is a good thing on your side of things. And I think that, like you were saying, the... It's important for Sazed to draw those boundaries and to, and to clarify and kind of stand up for himself. And it is one where he's not meaning to offend, but at the same time, he's educating. And I think he even frames, he was told to ask no more questions, and instead he poses everything as an observation as opposed to a question, which is another interesting way that he, like, dances and skirts around what he's been told. Because Sazed is, like, is like the nerdy encyclopedia of rebels. <laughs> like <he's, laughs> most rebels are like street smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's, like most rebels, he's three PO. Kind of like, I mean, kind of, <laughs> but like more less three, like much more, I mean, more, much more confident demanding and other things like that. But he does, he does. We even said that originally when we met him, he does have a strict, he does have a C three PO vibe. And I think that's specifically because he was kind of written to mirror the language in a similar way. Mm-hmm. Says it doesn't use contractions, for instance, almost at all. So cool. I just want to make mention of those things because I love, I love Says it. Moving into chapter 20, we start off with our logbook here. And most of these logbooks this week are short and insignificant. This one's actually kind of long comparatively, but I'll, I'll read it here for us. It wasn't until a few years later that I began to notice the signs. I knew the prophecies. I am a terrorist world bringer, after all. And yet, not all of us are religious men. Some, such as myself, are more interested in other topics. However, during my time with Elendi, I could not help but become more interested in the anticipation. He seemed to fit the signs so well. I don't think it's any new information. Like We had, we had gotten it from context clues before. It's just reiterating sort of explicitly the idea that Lendi had been heralded as the prophesized hero of ages and the world bringers are those sort of in control of reading the prophecies and interpreting the prophecies. Yeah, this is more on the terrorist religion and the terrorist faith, right? Like, that's what this is really kind of picking at a little bit, is giving mm-hmm. us and clarifying those terms to, to right. varying degrees. A world bringer, I think it's in a later one, a world bringer isn't necessarily someone who follows... God, what is it? We'll talk about it when we get there, but there's there's some specificity around world bringer and believing in the terrorist faith as a religious person or just believing in the reality of the situation, which they bring up. And I think that's related to the anticipation. Like, this is... Regardless of what you believe, <laughs> there there is a reality to the situation that the terrorist faith holds. So it feels like it kind of also heralds itself as the one true faith for that reason. Or like one true faith, I should say. Not the one, but one true. But there's some, there's some commentary there. Right. When we get there, we'll get there. With that, moving into the rest of the chapter, there's a layer of resentment between Vin and Tindwell, particularly in the ways that she can make him do things. She's described as this sort of matronly figure over top of him. But I, I find Vin's bitter reaction to be worth noting here, especially in the space of these chapters. Most of these changes, as Vin says, seem wholly positive, including the crew listening to Ellen. But she still has this like sour resentment that it wasn't because of her, that instead it was someone else. What do you think about her impression of Tindwell? Um, I, I think clearly the the changes that are being made are 
majorly positive, but they are changes. And that's something that Vin has to wrestle with a little bit. I don't think that's the major point of this. I think, like you mentioned, that these are very much so things that Vin had been sort of pushing for Ellen to to take seriously and to change. The one that she puts forward as an example is the fighting, like becoming more competent in fighting. And he never listened to her to to be able to do that or to, to make those changes and to sort of focus on that for himself. And so maybe maybe this frustration that Vin is feeling is actually with Ellen and she is maybe even sub subconsciously directing that frustration towards Tindwell. I don't know. I think more than anything, she is resistant to change. I think she has had such a tough time becoming accepting of the situation that she was in that seeing like very tangible, large steps of change are intimidating and scary for her because right now she, she seems happy with where she is. Even if later on we start to understand more of like her, her issues with the situation and who she is and her, her problems. But at least she's not being beaten all the time. Like she talks about that a lot in this section is like what her life was like before. So things are different now and she likes where she is now. Why take the risk on changing that is kind of the vibe that I'm getting from her here. It is, it is so fascinating that to some degree, the the sort of jealousy that's been imparted on Vin's perspective is one from Reen and her upbringing, kind of like we're saying, and then suddenly being brought into these this group of people of whom she listened to and absorbed the knowledge of equally and kind of treated everyone like equals, right? Like she took in all of these different perspectives to like form who she is right now. And so she kind of feels cheated that like Ellen only now when Tindwell said to do something is doing it like she was like, come on, like you should have been practicing like dealing with swords. And he's like, no, I have other important things. And all of a sudden, because Tindwell says so, it's like, OK, well, you fucking ignored me. My opinion doesn't matter. Mm. I, I get that. I feel that. And it's it's especially from someone of whom found trust and then placed so much faith in all of the people around her and trusted all the people around her. She's just like. Trust does not strictly equate to respect. Uh, no, it's it's not that. But that's that's true. That's true. Trust does not strictly equate to how I spend my time. <laughs> you know, like yeah. my ability to trust you to make a good recommendation does not mean that I'm going to immediately go and do that thing, even though it might be good for me and I might enjoy it. You know what I mean? Right. I've been rec- I recommended books to you for years and you never read them. You trust my opinion. It's just not something you wanted to do. However, when when I sit you down and put audience pressure on you, all of a sudden (laughs) you're listening to the audience to read whatever the fuck I tell you. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it's an, it's an example of that, that like cursory pressure and a regular relationship isn't conducive of, it, it also wouldn't be healthy. Like that's, it's so, it's so important to recognize that like Vin has unhealthy perspectives, which I think is what you're getting at. Like she's, she's not being abused anymore. She's talking about her past. She's like working through those things, especially with, with Orsur later. But it's it's important to just like you have to they're still figuring themselves out. And yeah, you can see that seed of doubt, though, in, in Vin here right now with the with the relationship to some degree. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not saying that doubting the whole thing, but like there's there's a question of like, well, why didn't you listen to me? So 
Yeah. So moving on from like Vinden Tindwell and kind of their emotional journey that's starting there, Ellen lays out a plan going going to his father to negotiate, requiring Vin to come with him to ensure his protection while he's behind enemy lines, etc. The crew has a very divisive reaction to this, but they've turned around to actually liking the plan after Ellen does a little bit more convincing, kind of moving the chess pieces into the right places and, and helping out there, or at the very least agreeing with their leader by the end of it. Tindwell's plan and like work to change Ellen seems to be paying off in this regard. I think because of Tindwell's lessons, Ellen is definitely like presenting himself with an air of confidence that he has never done before. And it's, you're right. It is working. They are regarding him with more respect, both from the point of necessity, but also just because of that way he's carrying himself. And that sort of sense of regality is not only sourced by Tindwell, we learn that it's also sourced from Breeze, which is kind of funny because Breeze is one of his like vocal adversaries throughout this entire chapter. Yes, especially when we get to that perspective with like Breeze doing a lot of the work. And that I think I think to your point, it is compounding and there is that benefit that we're experiencing. And I think long term. What's really interesting about this is that soothing in the short term is is an immediate benefit. It's an immediate boost of confidence, like you're saying, by suppressing those other energies and kind of artificially inflating that. But I think that it becomes a very different ball game because I think that this experience of like positively impacting a group is like, cool, I'm going to keep that with me forever and I'm going to remember that I can influence groups and then lends confidence to future interactions as well. So like, interestingly enough, Tindwell is shaping his behavior in like a real way and Breeze is giving him a permanent sense of confidence because of the way that everyone else is listening to him. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Then we move to Breeze, which kind of like we were saying, Vin detects the soothing. The important component here, of course, being that Breeze is soothing those emotions down. Like we were saying, Vin has to burn Duralumin to really get the sense of exactly what he's doing when she's pressing with bronze. So, or when, excuse me, when, yeah, she's pressing with bronze to detect. So she burns Duralumin to kind of really get into what those elementic pulses are and those specific emotions and is basically able to reconfirm that Breeze is definitely off the list. Yeah, there's that. I think one point to to make is Vin has used Duralumin a handful of times now. And while she was like closing her eyes and focusing on things, she's not so externally affected by Duralumin like she was the first time anymore. She's mm-hmm. in, she's not like falling on the ground convulsing fainting essentially like what she what she did the first time she used it accidentally which makes sense because she's in control of it she understands what it does so she's expecting the result but it's cool to see that adaptation of the ability to control what she's doing which is sweet super cool yeah i think this whole thing really it's a cool experience to see see them solidifying themselves as a crew because Ellen is still kind of the newcomer, so like it's easy to sort of keep him on the outside, but it's touching and kind of selfless for Breeze to, while, like, it makes me think that he's strictly playing devil's advocate and trying mm. to solidify actual, like, trying to present an adversarial point of view 
when debating with Ellen about decision making because he's boosting his confidence. He wants yeah, he really wants Ellen to be like. he wants Ellen to be at his best to argue his point while while Breeze is still like pushing against him saying like hey maybe this is better maybe that's like maybe this isn't the right course of action creating the best version of Ellen's point. Exactly. Yeah. It, it's it's allowing Ellen to I think what it's really doing is allowing Ellen to not back down on his point of view, but still have to fight against it, like have Mm -hmm. to fight for it. So Breeze doesn't want Ellen to concede and just give up on his point of view. Like he wants him to continue this line of thought, but he wants to bolster the argument itself. Yeah, he agrees with it. So as opposed to I I think it's in chapter 23 where like Doxon cuts off Ellen in the middle of a sentence and then Ellen starts to agree with Doxon in post this is instead Breeze propping up that argument to make sure that it's heard fully because Ellen might be not he might not be the best advocate for himself in those moments to right and so in turn by even starting a conversation or furthering an argument he's ensuring that all of the best points of what Ellen is saying is heard I just want to mention here as well i I think it's very cleverly done and it's been cleverly done over the course of this book but sanderson has switched for the crew they refer to ellen as l when kelsier was kel and i think that that's that's great because it shows this kind of fond parallelism in speech because kelsier was the leader before ellen is growing into this leader and so he's moved and kind of even the terms themselves have replaced each other so they get this this really like they get to repeat that familial bonding and it feels, you know, like he might actually be the heir to the survivor in some way. L versus Kel. Yeah. Yeah. That went over my head. I completely missed that, but I'm done with that. That makes sense. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I just think, I think it's fun and I think it's a good, it's a good point of parallelism. It is. Between the characters. It totally is. And I feel kind of dumb for not catching it. Ah, man, it's okay. I'm sure, you know, it's on everyone's bad. I don't Mm. know. Could be reading into it. After the meeting ends, we're left with Tin Will and Ellen following up on what he messed up during the meeting, any any mistakes that he made and sort of the, the statements therein. The conversation ranges in topics from requesting titles to guilt to what makes the best king or what 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 the best king is derived from, as well as a note on Ellen's feelings for Vin. Lots to break down here. Where do you want to start? <laughs> like, there's there's a lot that kind of Tinwell runs over. So I think we can start with her criticisms in general. We get a good feeling for Tindwell's teaching style here. And it seems very rooted in tough love, sort of. Like it, it reminds me personally of the way, like I think the best like pop culture example is Gordon Ramsay, and I'm pretty sure his mentor be like above him. Like mm-hmm. how they got their reputations was seeking perfection in their kitchens, so hyper focusing on any little out of place detail. While while it can be seen as a little bit over the top and a little bit aggressive and a little bit abusive at times, means that all of the problems are addressed and 
like agree with it or not, results are made. Like you, you can get close to achieving perfection by aggressively rooting out any issue. And that is an extreme version and not, I think, representative of what Tindwell is doing, but that sort of line, like that sort of style of teaching, I think is what she's going for of don't address the positives because they're already positive. You're already there. You've made it. Cool. Let's get down to the negatives. And she has earned his respect to the point where like he wants to him. It, he wants to impress her. And she, like we, we hear in the beginning, he's taking her seriously for sure. Yeah. But he's excited monologue. to present like, Hey, they let me do this. And even that was shot down. But we know, we know from context clues that Ellen craves her approval. So playing into that, she is only going to give approval when perfection is made. So I don't know. I appreciate the way that she's doing it. I I'd be, I'd be curious how she would react to and how, how she would teach somebody other than Ellen. Cause I, I feel like the, the, the feeling I get off of her is that she tailors her teaching style to more perfectly reflect who she's teaching. And I think she saw Ellen would react well to this style of teaching. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'd be curious if she would be maybe more compassionate and more encouraging to somebody else that wouldn't react well to a like negative focused teaching style. It's fascinating because I, I understand where you're coming from with teaching perspectives. I, I think that there's a component here of definitely, like you said, she's kind of he's trying to appeal to her sense of reason, like her logic and does feel that I think innate desire to impress her. But on top of that, she makes the statement of uh, the best king is one who's in power, I think is the quote vaguely. You know, a bad king is one that's is one that's been deposed or like the best king is one that's in power. Anyway, the point being is that like you're in charge. So you are, you know, you have to be the best version of yourself right now in, in all moments. And you have to try harder and do these things. And I think that. I think I really like the Gordon Ramsay comparison because I do think that early Gordon Ramsay was probably in a similar boat and then, you know, trying to pass that on. It's not this this old to say it's not always the best teaching method, but in a fucking emergency, it can be, you know, it can be shocking and impactful in a way that it needs to be. Yeah. And I think I'm sure that Gordon Ramsay and his predecessors went through a lot of people that didn't respond well to that teaching style. So it reminds me of whiplash, right? To some degree ruthless. Like it, it's, mm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. The whiplash example is a lot more abusive than what we're getting from Tindwell. Ultimately what we're getting is strict. And I think yeah. ruthless makes sense to me. Tindwell is not anywhere close to <laughs> like what I'm presented, like Gordon Ramsay or that whiplash example. Like, it's nowhere close to it, but it, it definitely follows Fletcher. the same. It's on the same side of the spectrum. Yeah, it it definitely is. I, I think that it it maps very well and very accurately. So what about the, the Vin side of the conversation? Talking about Vin and the emotionality and love and, and sort of the feelings and making Ellen defend his 
sort of stance. Yeah, I think that whole section, it, it was really nice hearing about Vin and expanding that women in general. The quote that sticks out and I, I think can be applied pretty much everywhere, our world included, is, I don't have the quote in front of me, but the idea that he says that Vin is different and she says, the more that you spend time with women, the more you'll learn that's true for everybody. <laughs> like, Yeah. I just, I, I appreciated that side of the conversation. Um, it's, it's a fun spin on she's different than other girls, you know? It, it's exactly yeah. what it is. Right. Like, but we get to see his genuine feelings about Vin. And we also get to see an approval from Tindwell. And I, I think that had to be coaxed out, first of all. But similarly, that sort of tough love kind of style, she's intentionally goading him into defending Vin to prove to herself that he actually loves her. But I think that confidence in having to defend her and confronting the thought on marriage coupled with the newfound confidence that we have in this Elland, I think he's going to like utilize that as a case for another proposal to Vin. And I, I think not a reason, but a catalyst for, for a second proposal. I think it's a really good point. I think that that's you're you're expressing a lot of the nuance that we're experiencing from the perspective of Ellen Venture. And I think that this this is really kind of grounding those feelings inside of him as to how he feels about her, which I think is really important. It's foundational. And it, it reminds us that this isn't just like a, a surface level infatuation. You know, this is this is reinforcing that he cares about her in a very real and sincere way. So any of the doubts that we kind of could have had in the beginning of the, or rather in the first novel are almost entirely eradicated here, especially from Ellen's perspective. It's so sweet. I, I used sweet. last week, I used your little beat about uh, you saying it's so fucking cute. Like the, I use that as our like promo beat for the week. And I was like, you're right. It is so fucking cute. That was such a good, <laughs> like, let's jump back. I want to talk about that. You skipped over it. So I just wanted to reiterate that here too. So we end the chapter with Demu reporting that Set's daughter is here and that she's looking for Breeze. Oh, funny character. Yeah, yeah. We're definitely going to be uh, seeing more clearly of Ariane. We've got uh, some more of her even in this week. So it is it's definitely going to be a thing. So. All right. So chapter 21, we start off with a logbook here. He was born of a humble family, yet married the daughter of a king. Did we know anything about that before that he was born a mundane to a certain farm boy? Yeah, yeah. Farm boy. Yeah. Yeah. Mundane life. Escape the farm. I think I made the comparison to Luke Skywalker back in the first book. I think you did. It's yep. right. Yeah. But it, instead becoming the emperor, which we know not to be true anymore. So yeah, right. this again is some background on our boy, Alendi, the unfortunate never hero of ages. Really, there's just no explanation here for the most part. This is this is a little bit more like fact finding world building e that we get mm -hmm. in terms of context, but we don't we're not getting a whole lot here. That's true. So, yeah. So we come back to meeting Seth's daughter, a plump, courtly woman, exactly like those that Ellen spent years trying to avoid at the balls. All rain, all Rianne set. She appears to be a font of information to the inner inner workings of Seth's army. 
that saying like really only having one piece of information, but maybe more in the future, but is here for something completely different. Notably, she wants running water for a bath and appears to be absolutely infatuated with her little breezy. Oh, Breeze, what did you do? <laughs> I love this reveal. I think it's just so funny and ridiculous. And like Ham's reaction to the whole thing just kills me. It is, for sure. As far as her claiming to be this font of information, though, the only piece of information that we really get from her at this point is how they're getting their like food rations, which is from a cannery. Mm-hmm. In Haverfax. Is it the same cannery that straff's army is getting their food from definitely not they're from different sections of the world okay so either way they're not they're not cooperating so but it's not something that they're not already equipped to like deal with like it's not going to change their tactics at all because they're already dealing with somebody who has sustainable food so this doesn't change anything but it technically gives them more information that they didn't know about like it, it feels very curated i don't know it is well and that leaves us with an interesting question of suspicion about Alrianne, right all is does she know more than she appears like could could she be a reverse spy you know that's a fucking is this that's not even a reverse sort of, spy it's just a straight up spy man well i well i say like she's a double agent right where she's yeah. appearing to like give up this information but like potentially on the other side yeah. still yeah, yeah. exactly but her love for breeze you know <laughs> breeze can't be loved we know that <laughs> oh no i i really love how the crew like breaks down and laughs about this right mm-hmm. deciding that they never expected this to be breeze in the same sort of regard that we're kind of joking or how like this is kelsier's role before was to be the womanizer to some degree i think it's just a fun note and it feels like a slap on a shoulder nature of the group like it shows that kind of like buddy buddy <laughs> it, you know i don't know it really does like Mm -hmm. it's what i really appreciated was the subtle like constant pressure for her to like get her to say that they slept together (laughs) like (laughs) that's all they were going that's all i wanted was for her to say that it it felt like a group of lifelong friends ribbing each other you know Mm -hmm. like it's exactly what we got from the club or from the uh, from the crew crew at the beginning of the first book This chapter ends with that banter turning sour, that kind of fun banter. Uh, Breeze kind of turning on its head and aiming it at Vin, talking about Kelsier and and other things there and kind of burying or pushing a hatchet down and turning it away from him, which is really aggressive and odd. But also, like, I I don't know. It's it's hard to deal with. But I, I would say we can definitely get back to that. But Ellen puts an end to that conversation in a very definitive way by sticking his head in and kind of putting the gavel down but obviously this is a new kind of wrinkle to deal with yeah i i think i had an entirely different read on that situation and i think it only feels aggressive and turning it on its head because of the perspective that we're in and because of our closeness to vin and how she feels about things what i got out of it was that Vin has been entirely integrated into the social ribbing culture of this group. Like it, it just felt like it didn't feel different than this felt negative to me. Did it? Yeah. Yeah. It, it didn't only feel negative when I read it, but it felt negative when I listened to it. It felt 
Um, I didn't, I didn't get that at all. It uh, like a little bit, like he was trying to pawn it off. Like he was, he was feeling attacked. So he was attacking in turn. Okay. I mean, yes, yes, I can see that, but it, it didn't feel antagonistic and it didn't feel unfriendly to me. It just felt like, Hey, I'm going to deflect. Like we're this group that rib each other. And I'm I'm the sort like I'm the target right now. But hey, let's shift it, and we're gonna put it towards another one of the members that are equally able to be targets for this. Yeah, I I see what you're saying. To me, it read more, you know, like those rare times where we get like mad at each other, but like not really. Like we get mad, but it's it's temporary. This feels like that. From okay. Breeze's perspective, if that makes sense. This okay. feels like him lashing out to some degree where he's like, well, don't you know, like your your relationship with Kelsier? And it's like, well, I didn't really I, I wasn't pining over him. And that could also be like a lack of understanding. That's a lack of communication, probably mm-hmm. on Vince's part, because she's, you know, new to the whole thing. But at the same time, to me, it feels like punching down a little bit. OK, I can see. I, that. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm, I'm just saying that's that's what I got out of it was like this sort of punching down. But yeah, I can see that. I yeah. can I can get on board with it. That's just not how I initially read it. Yeah, that's fair. Anything else on uh, on chapter twenty one? Pretty short, I pretty brief, but pretty pretty breezy. Little breezy, <laughs> some might say. Yeah. <laughs> I I just like I can't help but hear like breezy and think like some late two thousands rapper name or like <laughs> late twenty tens rapper name. So that's why I'm like little breezy is because I'm like just fucking shoot me now. Um, just kidding, but. You know, it it feels it feels like that to me. Every time they say breezy, I'm just like, oh, my God. Call us a little breezy. Like we're we're a group of fantasy rappers. We're going to make we're going to do our lemon rap. Yeah. Oh, God. What is the lemon on the chain with the V cuts? Lemon haze in the shade with my feet up. <laughs> lemon of her wings in a freeze cup. Lemons in their face. Watch them freeze up. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Anyway, with that, let's go into chapter 22. We got our logbook entry. He could trade words with the finest philosophers and had an impressive memory, nearly as good as my own, yet he was not argumentative. Nearly as good as my own. I think without any understanding of the terrorist people in Farrakhmi in general, I wouldn't put that much weight on that that comment. But that seems very, very important given the context. Feels specific for sure. It does. You know. The the degree to which his memory is effective. I wish yeah. I had a good identic? memory, man. Yeah, I mean, you don't remember what we were talking about 30 <laughs> minutes ago. Okay, I, I want to start off talking about this chapter after the logbook with a quote here that we're going to talk about from Vin. It is, I think, a... It reinforces a lot of the things that we were talking about with Sanderson and writing style and things like that earlier and, and sort of the way that he's shifting the monologues and he, he's developed a little bit here. But I, I really appreciate this little section. So, quote, nothing seemed certain anymore. Once the night had been her refuge, now she found herself glancing over her shoulder. Once Ellen had been her peace, but he was changing. Once she had been able to protect the things that she loved – but she was growing more and more afraid that the forces moving against Luthadel were beyond her capacity to control. Her own impotence frightened her the most. This is a, a, an example of kind of that the shift that I'm, that we're talking about. It's weird to me that it isn't fully parallel. You know, like this 
can't. This can't. This can't is kind of what you expect. But that final sentence is so long. You know, you just kind of expect those similar like parallel phrases to like really beat it, beat it home a little bit. But I, I think regardless, it communicates that Vin is in a tricky place in these chapters. She's got a lot to sort through and work out that she can't do everything. She can't be all encompassing and control the fate of the world like like a god might. But that's that for her, that's such a tough thing to embrace because she's gone from street urchin who has no impact to person who led to the downfall of the of a god on earth as as he appeared and is now kind of back in the place of you know she can control some things but she can't control everything i think this quote to me marks the point right before a breakthrough for vin and it's one that will push her to understand embrace and require a greater level of collaboration between her and her friends and Ellen and other leaders of whatever community that she's fighting for in the moment. It's kind of the point where she's no longer, it's no longer feasible for her to be a lone wolf, but she hasn't fully like accepted that yet, Mm -hmm. but I think she will soon. Okay. Do you think that's a good development for her to be kind of reverting to that lone wolf attitude? I think she's in the lone wolf attitude. I don't think she's ever gotten out of it entirely. I think she's begun to trust people, but she hasn't been a like team player when it comes to actual operations. She has come to to under like to be a part of a group on the whole and have friends, but her actual day-to-day operations have been entirely lone wolf except for when she was operating under kelsier you know she hasn't been part of like a strike team i get it for example yeah she hasn't had to directly well she's been a part of the crew she hasn't had to lead a group of people or hasn't had to like she's been a group contributor but she's really just doing her part of the assignment you know her her contribution is disseminating information later yeah okay okay or following through with what she was assigned to do. Yeah, and and I can understand that. I, this maybe lone wolf is the wrong term. Yeah, but lone wolf is very solitary. But I understand where you're coming from. She's segmented inside of the group. She is. She is the assassin. She's the blade, and she doesn't feel like she can be anything else to some degree. She feels like she has to be the blade. Yeah. Does that check out? It does. Yeah. Okay. Just want to make sure about that. Okay, didn't want to overwrite what you were saying. So <laughs> after the briefest of jump scares, not for us, but for Ham, uh, <laughs> we, we test Ham and we find out that he too is in the clear when he burns Pewter to buff himself up. Vin dismisses this quickly and jumps into a conversation with him, telling him how important he is to Ellen and his confidence. And I think truly Vin's not inflating anything here. Ham feels kind of like his closest friend. I mean, they talk a lot. They've talked a lot. That's kind of where the book opens is a conversation on the banister with Ham. So, you know, yeah. it's, I mean, it's very clear that he's very important. What 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 do you think? I really wish Ham was more featured in this story as a whole, you know? Like he's been very much on the back burner and my my hope for this conversation is it's going to be the catalyst for allowing Ham to become more in the spotlight character because mm-hmm. Vin is now convinced that he's not the imposter. So she's going to be able to lean on him more. And she's also pushing, p- 
pushing on the idea that ham is one extremely important, but two personally important to Ellen and and a great friend yeah. to Ellen. So that conversation from Ham's perspective hopefully pushes him to become more involved in Ellen's day to day life, which for us selfishly means that we get more ham. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I see that perspective. That makes sense. I think that we do. We've gotten more of Ham in this book than I think we have in others. He's present in almost every conversation. So it's yeah, good but, to know. But it's, we don't we don't really get any one on ones. And we got a few of those in the first book. We've, we've gotten some one on ones. He he got he he had one on one with Ellen right away at the beginning, like yeah. right away on the banister. And then we've also had one on one with the duel and the conversation around the duel with okay. Vin. So he's he's definitely been he's, there. He has. He just and, hasn't been himself. We haven't gotten that sort of philosophical. Yeah, we've only gotten one of those. We've only gotten one. I think I I I totally understand that. I just want to also posit that Ham right now maybe part of the reason that he isn't pushing so philosophically on so many of these things when he's asked and pushed to do so. We find out that he's not an imposter, which is important to clarify this point. But I think part of the reason is because I wanted to I want to make sure that's known. We are operating under the understanding that we know from our about his people, which has a high level of trust associated with it. But also, he's not infallible. He still believes that Vin can't pierce copper clouds and takes that as gospel. But we know for a fact that there are things that are not common knowledge that are still true and anything's fucking possible at this point. But you're right. But I, w- I want to move back to Ham and the philosophizing, if that makes sense. Sorry. I, <laughs> Sorry. I think that, well, no, I, I think that we are making an assumption. That's an important to clarify thing here. But I think on top of that, or just to kind of modify that, it's important to not miss the point that that Vin makes here about Ellen trusting Ham. And I think it goes both ways. And I think that's kind of what we're shown is he's not questioning things philosophically because I think he mostly agrees with Ellen and his perspectives. And and I think that he is ceding that trust and control and faith to Ellen. And Mm -hmm. this is just Vin providing that friendly reminder in case he kind of wasn't aware of how important he really is to Ellen. So I, okay. that's that's the feeling that I get isn't so much that we haven't seen the old ham. It's that we've seen a ham that is more discerning of when to ask questions. He's a curated ham. He's a cured ham. <laughs> He's a cured <laughs> ham. God fucking damn it. I mean, it's perfect. It's such a perfect joke. I believe Hammond, the gentleman that we're talking about, is very different. I spiked there. I got so loud. <laughs> it's the first time that I'm spiked ever on this microphone. So. We we cut back from the bit with uh, Ellen and Ham and kind of the conversation there about friendship to our good boy, our Orsor, of whom is a little bit of a stubborn old curmudgeon. But he's waxed and waned a little bit from being required to be pushed to say things to admitting some things to help Vin. And I think this is a symptom of their growing friendship, finally, and then coming to understand each other through their shared history of anonymity and trauma. What do you think about the Chandra and Vin? There's some growing friendship, yeah. But I think what this really does, 
this section is remove the shield hiding the true roots of the animosity between them. Okay. Like it doesn't really do much if anything to address to to fix the problem. But the fact that they're both understanding of where that tension is coming from will allow them to work on it down the line. So I, I think it's a pivotal moment in their relationship, but it doesn't necessarily fix anything. I think Vin is in a position where she's a lot more receptive to the idea of fixing it straight away, like saying like, hey, you can like, I'll free you from this contract if that if you want, or Sura is still a little bit reserved, but either way, they both seem to be opening up a little bit more than before. Yeah. Well, Orsor had been so restrained and Vin had also not tried to understand Orsor's position in all of this. True. And that's where that like really comes to light when when she switches from being sympathetic to empathetic, which we had a whole discussion about the other day. And she instead tries to push on and admit to like share her own experience that she's pretty sure that Orsor can empathize with based on their similar sort of personality faults i guess or like their their own sort of like personality traits so i i find that to be a good a great point in the story it's it's a it's a moment of not not weakness but of like strength of being able to tell your own story in in that Mm -hmm. regard so right if that makes sense that makes sense cool yeah definitely neat do you have nothing else on on all the shit that they share God, I, they talk a lot. They do talk a lot. Like they, they talk explicitly about the contract. They, I mean, like there, there is, a, there is still a big question in my mind about the contract itself. Sure. It seems to me that it's not magically binding for a couple mm-hmm. different reasons. One, it's explicitly stated that the contract was fabricated as a way of socially pressuring all of the chondra to stay in line so that their entire species is not eradicated yeah or reviled yeah right and also orsur offers up the information that her plan will work which I don't know the wording of the contract. I don't know what's actually in it, but it seems like that's in direct opposition to like the idea that he can't share anything about the inner workings and secrets of the Chandra. And he is kind of apprehensive about sharing it, but he feels the need to anyway. So as far as I can understand, he is breaking the contract there. And my, I guess... What that opens up for me is what sort of retribution is he opening himself up to if that were to come to light, if anything. About his sort of openness surrounding the contract, like the the danger that he's kind of exposing himself to by talking about it in the first place. Not, not the contract itself. Mm. He says reluctantly after she's asking about specifics about Chandra. And whether or not they can be alamancers. He says your plan will work because if they're exhibiting alamancy, they can't be Chandra, which as far as we can tell is part of the contract. 
not being not sharing secrets about the Condra race. So, if that is truly breaking the contract, what are the repercussions if he gets caught, or if if it's something more magically binding that he'll be automatically caught anyway? I'm interested in finding out. That is a great question that hopefully we'll see answered. It I, it does feel for for Asur, it feels tenuous at best when he's the path that he's chosen. Right? He feels he it's not it's not as though he's regretting his choices or anything like that, but he is trepidatious with sharing this information. He is definitely timid about the entire sort of moment. Yeah. So. Yeah, that reflection of openness and honesty, I think, is really important to them growing together as friends and as characters as a whole. Right. Yeah. Vin also makes an important reflection on her own words, that she's only here to kill things, as she says, as though that has kind of taken over her personality and has become priority number one for her. To me, she feels almost restrained, like she can't be something else or sees or or can't see that she could be something else you know that that she could even achieve sort of a different state of mind she's just kind of stuck in this sort of terminator mode to eliminate john connor you know <laughs> or protect like alan venture at like any cost right so it, it just feels like she's got she's putting those terminator shades on and cannot pull them off in in a big way yeah i think similarly to the conversation about Vin and Orsur. This is realizing the roots of issues that will allow her to address them down the line. Now that she's like verbally recognized that what's kind of upsetting her is the fact that she's essentially made herself a tool. Like maybe that'll motivate her to make a change because as far as I can tell, like she's put herself into this situation Mm-hmm. Like she, yes, she's being she she is being used as an assassin and as a tool for this regime, but it doesn't seem like she's forced into that position. It seems like she's offering herself and her skills into that position. She's so. sort of acquiesced to the easy solution. You know, she's yeah. sort of, you know, like made herself available in that way. So, yeah. Being the assassin was her idea, as far as I can tell. Yeah, she was kind of putting that together from what Kelsier said, but it was not a strict statement. It was not unlike a lot of the other roles that the other crew members received. It was not so direct. It was more of an inferred. Yeah, it was an inference for sure. And allowing that to kind of like take over her personality is very costly, I think, to to her mindset as she's finding it. She doesn't get to be the woman that she wants for Ellen. She's constantly afraid for herself. She can't commit because she's not sure if she's going to be there tomorrow because she has to protect him. Yeah, there, there's a lot that's kind of running on this single trait or riding rather on this single trait. Yeah, it's sad. It's it's sad to see her put that much pressure on herself and equally sad to see her like feel bad about the amount of pressure that's on her. Yeah. You know, at least she's observant enough to realize that so she hasn't in in the in terms she hasn't yet seen this she hasn't yet figured it out for herself but at the same time she I does think that, i think reflect. this is it so at the very least she's reflecting on it but i don't think she's internalizing that message she's not internalizing what it means yet if that makes sense she she understands she sees the pain she isn't correcting for it you know right i i think that 
the point where it said that she's reflecting on her own words saying that she's just there to kill people yeah or there to kill people right is the beginning of the self-reflection i don't think we got the the progression of that conversation with herself but i think that's the like that's the the opening to that conversation yeah the initiating confrontation yeah definitely I see that as well. We're pulled out of this moment and greeted by a familiar face, one of whom we've had many perspectives in since the beginning of the book. And that is Sazed, bringing information about our problems and troubles with capital P and T's here. But we've got a lot more on that in the next chapter. I had to giggle a little bit at his intro verbally, which was I was beginning to wonder how long it would take you to find me. To Vin. Oh, he's I love Sazed. He's kind of toying character. around with her and 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 he thinks it's fun, but at the same time, she probably takes it deadly serious, you know? Like she's probably like, oh fuck, a terrorist could have got in here and assassinated Ellen Venture. You know? Yeah. There's gradients to that. So chapter 23, the logbook on 265. The terrorists rejected him, but he came to lead them. Okay, buddy. I really feel like this is not written from a place of genuine feeling. This logbook. This this logbook feels like uh, after the fact justification of action and absolving themselves of wrongdoing. Even if there was no actual wrongdoing done, it just feels like I like I like the term you used like absolution of sins. Like it, it feels like yeah. an absolution of what they did. Yeah. Passing the buck. Yeah. Yeah, I can agree with that. It does have a strange feeling to it. Like for me, and I, I always think about it, like those things, like a taste in my mouth, and this leaves me with a an odd, an odd sensation that I'm not sure how to how to think about this character. You know, yeah. like yeah. And you've been developing that skepticism since the beginning, almost since forever. Let's be real. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about specifically <laughs> with Quan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. We hop over to Ellen and listen to Sazed give color to the new Coloss threat. And it that color is a deep, sad blue. <laughs> I fucking hate you. <laughs> I hate you so much. It's like it's a shitty joke, but it's still there. Anyway, there, there are 20,000 Coloss based on the rough math of what happened to Set's army. <clears throat> That's worth basically 80,000 men being the 500 for 2000 explanation that we get this is an eminent threat and danger but one that could be helpful in the end what do you think of the crew strategy and how they're thinking about this new coloss blue period blue period okay yeah you're doubling down (laughs) okay the crew's new blue period they're they're absolutely fucked from a strategic perspective if they want to go head-on with either of these armies or both of them together, or all three of them together, for that matter. So the only option, as far as I can tell, is to take the kind of sneaky route and sow chaos between the armies and pit them against each other. Or just surrender. Like, those are the two options if you don't want to just straight up fucking lose. Yeah, they don't have a direct conflict option. Like, they mm-hmm. don't have a, ah, I'm going to attack them. Like, there's, yeah. no, you can't fucking attack like we we got into this conversation before mm-hmm. so i'm not going to rehash it if you if you want to like listen to our conversation about 
this. You can listen a couple episodes before. I can't remember which one. But Josties is kind of the only one of the group that wouldn't necessarily subject the ska to the same oppression that they were used to before before the fall of the Lord Ruler. So I think if there's anything diplomatic that can be done strategically, it could be done with Josties. Ellen would have to be there. Like uh, like I mentioned before, Josties seems to be kind of lost in his philosophy of what he's doing. He's not leading with ruthlessness, but he's also not leading with intelligence. There are moves that could be made from Josties' perspective that that could really benefit the people, and he seems to be more focused on actually conquering but not for the right re- like it, he just seems lost in his reasoning and i think ellen could help him if they were to actually create a meaningful alliance as opposed to what jossies was putting forward yeah right what he was putting forward to say is it and that's kind of the the question that's the sort of it's not fully but it is kind of an assertion of says in this moment is you know that guy seems like he's falsely confident in in the control of these things. There's another question posed here that I, I just want to bring up is that, like, how did the Lord Ruler control the Coloss? Because it was assumed that it was just another kind of godly power that he had. But clearly it's something. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, there is clearly something. But it seems to be more about segregation than actual control. Okay. So... But clearly he was able to, like, lead them into combat at some point. So, like... Yeah, they talk about using the Coloss to capture islands that are discovered that have, like... That and when the Lord Ruler dies, certain... The Coloss go crazy, right? Like, they... They oh, freaked out. yeah. Yeah. So there's something mist-related or alamancy-related. No. I, I think mist-related entirely but I, I don't know what that is yet and i can't I, I i don't have enough i don't have anything to make any sort of educated guess on it, it <laughs> it's just but it, it's a good question nonetheless yeah it is it'll be good to keep in my mind okay all right Caesar brings up another one of our mysteries, that of the dangerous mist being loosed upon the land by killing the Lord Ruler and how it's coming out during the day. I like that kind of a jabbing match here starts between Ham and Breeze as though Ham should have philosophized about the impending doom or some such. And it's it's just, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. As far as the mist goes, it's scary shit. Like, yeah, that's it's terrifying. Like, it's. I would bet that there are going to be more people that are becoming more confident with going out into the mists as there's not a constant oppression beat down upon them from the Lord Ruler and his lackeys. So, like, maybe there's more ska going out into the mists at night and, like, not really paying attention to the stories that they've been told from a young age. And to see people like actually get fucking not eaten but murdered by this this mist is horrifying and just puts people back in their place for where they were, probably even more so in a more uh, convictive way. That said, 
that's all I really have to say about the mist. As far <laughs> as Ham goes, yeah, he really hasn't been the philosopher that we've come to know. I, you I know, miss it. I I agree with you. I think it's really interesting because, and again, I'm saying interesting, and I mean it this time. God damn it! But I think that this again, getting back to something we talked about earlier, is Ham shifting with Ellen a little bit to be a little bit more of a man of action. It's a little bit more of a juxtaposition between the two because he there's a severity to his position now. Before he was a part of a thieving crew. Now he's responsible for a nation in its own right. He's he's the leader of the guard. And so there's there's a severity and a necessity of leadership from that position. And so I think he's spending a little bit less time questioning things. Even though I think he still probably is on the inside. If we get his perspective, we'd for sure know. But I, I think that he's being that man of action because he is he is both a philosopher and a soldier. Like he is those two things and they're directly at odds. And right now we need the soldier. We don't need someone else to add questions to the mix. Right. That's fair. That's totally fair. And especially now that we know that he's legit, you know, so. But that doesn't necessarily explain. It feels like his personal time. And his time with his friends, when they're just kind of distressing, he would revert back to his old self of, like, exploring these philosophical questions. And that's definitely what they're expecting here. Yeah, that's that's definitely the expectation that that Breeze even lays on Ham. It's like, you're not going to bring this up. And I think that's where I lean into Ham is the man of action. He's just had this conversation about the seriousness in which his opinion and feelings impact Ellen as his close friend. And so I think he's just taking it seriously, you know, just making sure that he's there for his king and his friend. Yeah. So, you know, I, I there's there's probably more there. And I think we'll we will find out more as we go. But I just yeah. Yeah, I do miss a little bit of the philosophizing, of course, you know me, but I I can also see why it's not there right now. I can see that. Yeah, there's a reveal here that's really so small that you might not catch it. Says it pulls back and uses Bree's last name, Ladrian, of which we heard in the first book, but also attaches the term Lord to it. Lord Breeze Ladrian, a nobleman proper as a part of this crew the whole time hidden right underneath Kelsier's nose. I think that this is a, a wrinkle that is hidden that would have hankled Kelsier a little bit more had he known about Breeze's origin in the last novel because Kelsier is very caught up on the idea of killing all noblemen despite having one among his ranks. Yeah, you are entirely correct. I didn't catch that at all. I try not to like not catch you on things if that makes sense. Like I, I try not to bring that up, but it, it feels like important juicing here that we have to talk about and like i noticed that he used the term lord but i didn't read into that as like a proper term for a specific subset of people at all i read it as sazed addressing somebody who was acting as an advisor and leader and quote-unquote nobleman of this new kingdom rather than a holdover explicit title of the old regime sure so i didn't get the nobleman implication at all but i did notice the lord thing it just didn't set off any alarms what do you make of the the lord implication and like what do you think that would have done to kelsier i have i have a feeling that kelsier knew 
Okay. Strangely, because we we've talked a lot, even in this section of like this book, that Kelsier was very very careful about choosing his his team, and while for the most part Kelsier was seemed to be for the idea of killing noblemen without prejudice, I think internally was a little bit more nuanced than that, and we we saw contradictions to that idea. We saw him defending the Ska that were just doing what they had to in order to survive by defending the noble keeps. Even though in the same chapter sometimes he would be like vilifying them for the same reason. Um, I think he was a conflicted person with much less extreme and prejudiced views of the noblemen than what he outwardly showed. It sounds like, and I don't want to put words in your mouth fully, but it sounds like you're accepting him as dead. I wasn't trying to make any commentary on Kelsier's alive or dead status. It's hard to believe that he's alive based on what we've seen, but I'm also not ruling that out as an option. Sure. Okay. Cool. I find... Ariane, a good polar comparison to Vin. She's sort of this frilly girl, wherein Vin is like this sort of dressed down weapon. This person who's only in like pants and tra- or like shirt and trousers all the time, and you've got you've got Ariane who's dressed up and and sort of secretive and and whatnot. It's it, very interesting, very kind of different. But I think all in all, all in all, we don't have that much from Ariane. But I just want to mention this because I think that we're starting to get a taste of their opposing positions as. Um, women within this court and sort of their position between the men that are there and and kind of everything else around them, you know, especially in this chapter, she kind of barges back into the room. What what do you think about Ariane? So the vibes that I get off of her are very much the same as the noble woman who turned out to be the informant. What was her name again? Oh, God. Started with a C, I think. Sean Alariel and... Oh no, that was. I think it was Sean. a K. No, no, no. You're you're thinking about you're thinking right. God, Chris Bell, something like that. Cliss, it's Cliss. Cliss, Cliss. Yeah. For the record, I wasn't able to look it up in time, but I did remember yeah. it. So yeah. Cliss gives me the same like after the reveal of Cliss. This gives me the same vibes. Like she's very clearly playing into the idea of being this ditzy, bubbly young woman but maybe isn't quite as good at hiding her intentions as Cliss was the comment like another example of or an example of that like obviously we get all the commentary that vin makes and the things that ellen picks out of she's dressed but she has disheveled hair and how could she have heard that from how far away the guest quarters are and like a whole bunch of different things but the fact that she wouldn't understand that Vin is an important member of this, like, small council is suspect to me. Like, Vin is, I don't think they've kept it secret that Vin is basically the most powerful Mistborn that they've come across lately, you know? The idea that she's playing dumb about it is suspect, is I guess what I'm saying. And I, I think that there's there is some I I think your read on her suspicion is correct. I think that she 
is making kind of an assumption of playing dumb a little bit and that we in turn can kind of infer this relationship that Vin has previously had with other other people. So mm-hmm. Vin, you know, for for all of our love of Vin, she's still not a great read of character. <laughs> you know, like she just she doesn't know how to read people that well. She's getting better at it, but that's in part because she's just been so jaded to people on the whole that, you know, it's it's not an easy thing for her to evaluate people. I feel like that's the better way to be in a fledgling government. Be overly cautious and only trust people if you have explicit reason to trust them. I think that's the better way to do this, especially yeah. when dealing with like high politics. Right, right. Great point. Our final like real talking point of this week is that of Sazed and Tindwell hashing out details between the two of them. Sazed's responsible for sh- is is responsible according to the Synod for shepherding the Eastern dominance according to that assignment and should be doing that, but he argues that he has something greater to do. And Tindwell paints him as as the rebel and dissident that he was that they needed at the time as a tool for Terrace, but that he that sort of opportunity is passed and that he should be something else now this mm-hmm. i think is an accusation that has great weight on sazed as a person and sort of the personality and, and what he means to the terrorist people as a whole and there's also something that we've seen sazed wrestling with himself what do you make of tindwell's argument i think she has a point and she brings up some really great practical arguments as to why Sazed should be following what the orders were, notably and namely teaching the people of the fringes how to grow food and govern themselves and straight up survive the upcoming winter. If they're not yeah. taught how to do things like that, they are doomed, which is a heavy thing to be put on Sazed. And I feel like that's a little bit glossed over in this section. It occupies a sentence, but it's not focused on. And I think that's something that we could make. That's something that could be brought up to Ellen and the committee and the the crew in general and like have a really interesting and intense conversation about. Hmm? You said interesting. I'm allowed to say it because I don't overuse the fucking word. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah. It it could be an interesting conversation with uh, the crew. But it could be important. And it would be, there'd be very good reason to have that conversation. And the fact that it's a little bit glossed over is, I don't know, it's, I I don't know if it's just because the story necessitates it, but we kind of need to get past that in order to continue thinking about Sazed's goals and Sazed's like greater calling that we're talking about here, which is valid. And is it's entirely valid. He is in this unique situation based on the connections that he has and what he's been able to find. It's hard to argue that he's acting selfishly at all because in the grand scheme of things, he's acting in the greater benefit of the terrorist people and the world at large by doing what he can to spread this information that he's discovered. It's just that's at risk of this small group of people in the immediate that might suffer over the winter by not having the tools that they require to properly like sustain themselves. Yeah. 
that's a shitty decision to be forced to make because Sazed feels kind of it, it feels a little meta to say this, but Sazed feels his own importance in the narrative quote or like his his weight in the world, as it were, and understands that he can have an impact. He has those connections, like you were saying, and, and he really has that weight on something that feels immediate as opposed to something that feels remedial, you know, like something that is just continuing to exist to assist people in living and it, which is very important because the ska have not been trained in a number of these things and they don't have that education needs to be passed on and that's why the synod trusts him to do that but at the same time no one at the synod has the relationships or the connections or sort of the deep understanding of this and that is it's such a difficult touchstone to like fixate on as as the argument for says it is like you can help a lot of people this way and you can maybe help a lot of people doing that but you can help a lot of people immediately and he's he's choosing effectively teaching the enslaved versus ensuring that they're never enslaved again yeah and that's tough that's I, and tough. i think that's that's his kind of like counter argument to tindwill yeah in summation like it's not you know what he's saying but I just, I, I think the argument could have been pushed a little bit harder. It was, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I can feel that. Either way, like super well done. And it's it's a quandary that says it has to navigate. Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, so that leaves us with the final logbook of the week, the ending logbook. Really quick and simple here. He commanded kings, and though he sought no empire, he became greater than all who had come before. Reads on that? I feel like the idea of not seeking an empire is what makes you a great leader. So I don't know how to parse that, but I think that that's what makes a leader great is not not seeking power, but seeking genuine leadership. This is more of like a commendation in a way. Like this is actually, it I is. think, a thumbs up in some ways from Quan than some of the other commentary is like, yeah, no, he he was a good person because he led through belief and didn't seek an empire but gained one. And that's mm-hmm. so interesting. Fuck. Yeah. That's so fascinating. It's not better to say fascinating. It's just different. It's a fucking synonym, folks. But it it is so revealing to what Quan's reading, but, but I'm starting to get this. I, I don't know if you are, but I'm starting to get like the sine wave feeling about the way that Quan reacts to, uh, Alendi. So it's, he's up and then down and then up and then down. And, and there's these sort of, I think I made the comment of like waxing and waning emotions here, you know, any, any thoughts along that line of like the meta narrative? I know we talked a little bit about this earlier, but this is the first one in a, in a while that doesn't feel strictly, Self-focused, first of all, and negative towards Lendi. Like, th- this is the only one I think of this book that I can remember that is strictly about Lendi and strictly positive. And maybe it wasn't intended to be, but it, to me, it feels strictly positive. Okay. All right. Cool. With that, we go into PJ's previous predictions. We've got one to pay off this week. The question that was asked was, we also finally get a look behind the curtain at Vin and Ellen's blossoming relationship. They're still flirting like they were before, but there's a curious note that Ellen had proposed and that she had declined. Why do you think that she did that? Your answer? 
my answer to that was, I think there are a few answers to that. One is self-image and feeling unworthy. Though untrue, I think that something that Vin will struggle with, ah, it's weird reading back what I wrote or what I said. You know? You're using to prompt yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Though untrue, I think that's something that Vin will struggle with throughout the story. Another distraction. Another is distraction. She's taking the role of the assassin very seriously and adding a marriage to that might not be conducive to that. I feel like a fucking idiot reading this word for word but but effectively this is something that's <laughs> almost like we we pretty much we didn't quite like textually confirm but we did talk about this almost in exact context where this week it was like well she does feel the weight of being the killer only and and yeah. that while we haven't gotten that direct implication i decided that i'm going to take the drink for this because it feels like while we mm. haven't perfectly cleared it up we clearly have the underlying feelings and we get the the notes from Tindwell and Ellen's conversation as well that seem to clear this up for right. us. Yep. Cheers. That's skull, as they say. You did not have to drink for that. It was skull. my drink. Skull. Yeah. I know, but I've got All right. a drink here that I want to finish at some point. <laughs> Fair enough. So before we go in any anywhere else, we're gonna go to last week's question, which was who's the best boy dog who's the best boy slash animal companion in all of fiction we've got a ton of answers here to talk through because we had this running for two weeks so pj why don't you kick it off so first one is from tim pearson which he gave a couple answers one of them i don't think counts as an animal companion because it is the protagonist of the story but is a good answer regardless and that is courage from Courage the Cowardly Dog. Quote, dude is scared out of his mind constantly and fights off supernatural shit single-handedly to protect Muriel. It does make him the goodest boy. You know, like it does make, he, like he while he's not an animal companion, boy. he's the goodest boy. So he is the good boy. Like I, I'll give him that. Fucking love that dog. I love, I love courage for sure. Mm-hmm. I always loved courage. I, I loved the horror of it. And I think that's part of the reason that I like horror TV or like horror yeah. anything. I think that it, it totally broke me in on the genre as a whole that, and the like monsters show where the dude with like two eyes was like holding his eyes above his head with in his hands. Yeah. I think that those two shows single handedly made me like horror as a kid. Yeah. Anyway, the other answer was Roach from the witcher and specifically roach from the witcher three i don't know enough about the witcher lore to to understand the distinction i know that Geralt names all of his horses roach but yeah it's just one that sticks with him throughout that entire story versus a lot of the times he like loses a horse and then gets like a new horse Mm -hmm. so it's one that sticks with him a lot longer than other horses gotcha so that makes sense to me. Cool. From Boots in Space, Jake from Adventure Time or Twig from Hilda? I love Jake. Jake is such a good answer to this question. You know, it's just, it's heartwarming those moments in which he comes out. So I love Jake. Good call. Yep. From Sharkbait, Artax from The NeverEnding Story. And by her own admission, she committed emotional terrorism by posting a picture early in the morning 
for everybody to see <laughs> of the screenshot of the horse in the swamp of the death scene of Artax. So it is emotional terrorism. How dare you? <laughs> How dare you, Shark Bay? Um, with that, we go on to Summit Falcor from the Never Ending Story. Love I and in general, like this, this is just a great, great answer. There, there are a couple of others here though, too. Mr. Kindly from Nevernight, of which I have not read yet, but of course I'm I'm very aware of because of our friend Pierre Ford, the absolute cat sass of that character, and Corbin's wolf storm from the faithful and the fallen so i know one of these three animal companions because i haven't read faithful and the fallen yet or Nevernight. but i you know i love falcor and i'm excited to meet other animal companions always and so i would i will be clear i was the one that was pulling these answers and i put falcor because summit posted a gif of falcor in like the conversation but there was no actual text associated with it so i just went I went with it and put it in the in the document. I feel like that's going to be right, you know. Yeah, I love those. All three of those are good answers. From Marcus, yeah, we've got Wishbone. I am not explicitly familiar with Wishbone off the top of my head. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about this that I might recognize it based on the intro music. So for me, my my recognition of wishbone and and just for everyone's clarification wishbone is you know a a good boy of whom was uh, was filmed in relation to like books and teaching young kids how to read and kind of this exciting way to like pair a dog with reading and so it was kind of like it reminds me of the like scholastic book fair in a way not that it was branded that way but it kind of gives that same sort of energy if that makes sense of of sort of the things that were being filmed at the time but yeah definitely listening to the intro is what sent me back and realized that i remembered who wishbone was so that was that was definitely strange recommend looking up uh wishbone intro just so if you if you're unaware just give it a give it a quick listen and if you're of a similar age you know anywhere from upper 20s to you know or mid 30s you you might know wishbone it's definitely a 90s thing and we were on kind of the the back end of that education wise so gotcha yeah i recall it from like kindergarten first grade so makes sense yeah so ivana says oi who is the best boy from the dark tower a uh, i don't want to get into this too much but you know a billy bumbler a raccoon like dog animal companion of whom is just fucking incredible and we we have this answer again inside of this list just to reaffirm that this is a fantastic character i'm not going to talk about it anymore because i'm going to make pj read the dark tower but i wholeheartedly agree you took my answer from my mouth next we've got from artificer Safira from aragon or goose from captain marvel you haven't seen captain marvel have you i have not goose is a is a cat that is also an interdimensional being all right simultaneously i highly recommend um and safira is the dragon from aragon in case you were unaware of which i assume you were it's the blue dragon on the cover of that first book i read it as a kid recall none of it recall none of it it's fair a kid wrote a fantasy series at 14 so wild a like crazy Hey, that story is insane in its own right. But anyway, point being, it's a good book. It's a good book. All right. Cool. So I, to our discord, I made mention that I got a couple of unhinged answers and I'm going to just like pair them up, so to speak, just to speak to them more at a time. So from Yorkie lover on Twitter, 
I got Dobby the Elf, <laughs> Dobby, <laughs> Dobby, um, from Harry Potter. And while this made me burst out laughing, <laughs> is at the same time very demeaning. <laughs> the follow up that I got is, well, they're an elf creature. He's an elf creature, and I'm like, well, it's a race. It's a person. He's Dobby is a person. <laughs> God damn it! Regardless of whether or not he, he has the sock or someone's holding his sock as a slave, I don't. You know, I don't care. Damn it. This answer doesn't count, but I had to read it. Uh, second it answer, <laughs> second unhinged answer is Wilson, <laughs> the volleyball from Castaway. <laughs> you know, oh god, got, got me properly fucked up. All right, that one was from my stepmom. <laughs> so she she just sent she saw the tweet and she's like, oh yeah, it's Wilson. It's like that doesn't <laughs> fucking count. Come on, god damn it. It was so mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. Yeah. From Dylan, we've got Oi, which you've already talked about. Pan Our from boy, Oi. His Dark Materials and Church from Pet Cemetery. Church is fucked up, man. I'm not going to lie. I can't believe, A, two of these characters, two of these animal companions are Stephen King. Picking Church is fucked up, dude. Have you seen Pet Cemetery, PJ? I think I saw the mo- the most recent movie. Okay, they're, well, they're like, three adaptations so the most recent the most one. okay so church dies and then is revived by the the right right yes the graveyard there yeah. yeah okay so picking church is fucked up that's my point like okay church is barely like in the book church is like oh it's the family cat and, like you get to love the family cat and then church dies and they put him in the pet cemetery and then he comes back and it's like oh we can revive with the pet cemetery and then you kill the kid and then the kid dies gets hit gage gets hit by a truck and then you put gage in the cemetery and gage comes back to life but not the way you wanted him to he's pretty fucked up he's a little zombie kid you can't Mm -hmm. you can't kill your own son anyway that's the whole plot of pet cemetery (laughs) yep Good job. Fuck you for putting church. (laughs) Love you, Dylan. It's a great answer. To wrap this up, our final answer before PJ and I contribute ours is from Tiff, of whom was one of our co-hosts on the romance episode in Short Pours. So Tiff submitted Saphira from Aragon as well, and the horse named Socks from Name of the Wind, and Binky from Discworld. I think it's Blinky, actually. I think it autocorrected. Blinky from Discworld, of which all of those are good. I I haven't read... I know of Socks through Name of the Wind. I have not read it. I've heard it enough. People love Socks. So, totally understand. PJ, do you have a favorite good boy? We talked about this last week. Wilfred. Fucking shit. <laughs> I, all right. I, I so, that was the answer. Wilfred in the show, both adaptations, because there's a an Australian version of the show and an american version of the show but wilfred is depicted as a person in a dog costume but in reality is just a fucking dog Mm -hmm. he is just a dog and i think that it opens up this conversation of deep-rooted mental illness and internal reflection not in a negative way but just in 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 a tangible way being able to to create this sense of internal reflection and outsource it to a just the neighborhood dog that you're taking care of for the weekend like that show is so good for so many reasons but for its way of tackling suicide and suicide ideation and mental illness in general through 
this kind of fucked up dog character is really, really, really good. Yeah, I I love Wilfred. It was one of my favorite shows. I mean, I still think about Wilfred all the time. And we we talked about this, I think, in the Devil's Cut last week or something like that. And that it it kind of wormed its way into the regular episode as we were talking about dog fucking for some stupid reason. But... (laughs) Not actually. We weren't actually. We we specifically said don't fuck dogs, and that was the entire we, context of that. I mean, because yeah, Wilfred continually dogs. reiterates don't fuck dogs. But I, I think it's so fascinating that when you think about Wilfred, you have to try to watch it as though Wilfred is a dog, and you're imagining him as a person because you're seeing a person act out the behavior. But at the same time, like the reason Wilfred is humping shit is because the dog would hump shit. You're getting the internal monologue of a dog at the same time as you're getting the internal monologue of a depressed person. It's 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 so well done. It's so well done. And again, is another reason that I think that you would like Legion, of which I've mentioned to you a couple of times now. So goddamn it, go yeah. watch Legion, PJ, because okay. it gives you. It is written similarly. It reminded me, actually, now that you mentioned Wilfred, I was thinking the the brand of humor reminds me of Taika Waititi's humor. It's it's very similar to the way that Taika Waititi frames things in his other non-Marvel projects. Yeah. It reminds me of like the early What We Do in the Shadows, and I was looking it up. What Wilfred came first. Bringing that up, it makes a very good connection between like Wilfred and jojo rabbit in that it's this very very serious conversation that's entirely wrapped in comedy i i totally agree with that i think to be fair i think like a lot of some of the best fantasy stories wrap them in that way uh tiff brought up discworld of which one of the main characters of the entire discworld series is death and death is depressed he's got a couple of cats i actually i think blinky is one of the cats if i'm remembering correctly i read this in my teens and i i fucking love it it's Imagine Douglas Adams wrote a fantasy world. So cool. So clever. So funny. It's very similar kind of humor. Anyway, point being like death is depressed because he has to kill people and he like doesn't like that gig. He he didn't sign up for this shit. And it's got that sort of meta commentary aspect that like Jojo Rabbit also has on on sort of illnesses like depression and like, yeah, yeah. So. Okay adjacent things in commentary mine i think we made mention of a couple of times oi is the goodest boy i don't care oi i have so many thoughts about oi and i don't want to spoil anything for you pj but i think that oi embodies the for everyone who knows exactly what i'm talking about embodies the content in the best way possible like it just is sort of the spirit and soul of that so all that was gobbledygook to uh, to pj so that's all that matters yep excellent excellent so with that we move into next week's question of the week we are looking for your favorite fantasy race slash species here's here's the thing folks this is a very easy thing to give me like a one word answer on and i will not be accepting one word answers i want why i want i want original creative ones i want like oh i love the coloss because they've got this interesting description of like blue skin stretched and and they've got this sort of creative bend on the world not just a generic i love orcs from lord of the rings give me give me the why give me that Mm. get specific yeah and that's that's not to say that you can't say orcs from lord of the rings but give give reasoning yeah yeah again yeah not trying to eliminate it just like just saying orcs are my favorite doesn't doesn't give me anything to go off of you know because orcs there are all kind there are all kinds of flavors of orcs 
orcs in Lord of the Rings are completely different than orcs in Warcraft. So, right. Next week, we are going to be reading chapter 24 through 27. That is going to put us at the beginning of part three. So read up until part three, King. Cool. So with that, that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you, of course, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for helping us keep our show's lights on. You can check out all the links in our show notes. You can find our schedule, our Patreon, our previous episodes, our websites, our social media accounts, all in one very convenient location. Check out our short pour next week that's going to be coming out with Pura Ford in, in the new short pour channel. You can check out that link in our description on our show notes and on our website as well. Covering Gideon the Ninth. So look out for that coming on the... 20 god when did i agree to put this out the 29th cool sound like a race car there 20 20 if you can't be bothered to look into the show notes you can for find some reason our twitter instagram and reddit are at words whiskey pod our Email address is wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. And if you'd like to get in on the devil's cut and get in on all this fun behind-the-scenes conversation that we have, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash wordsandwhiskey. Thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to us, and we will see you next week. Have a good one. Goodbye. <laughs>